My first right. name's Elmer. Just uh, uh, get that out of the way. So I don't go by that, though. Did you say Warner? Elmer. 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 Oh, nice. Man. Yeah. So since my middle initial is P, I'm Elmer P. Uh, if my last name was Lee, I guess I'd have it made. <laughs> hey everyone, we're in the height of a release season and we've got some good news to share. If you remember back on episode 109 entitled Retail Price Wars, we talked about stores charging three, four, or even five times the MSRP prices on their allocated bourbons. I've been told that Sazerac actually caught wind of this episode and has actually decided to do something about it and treat those stores who are pricing their products fairly. They're getting increased allocations and even shots at more barrel picks. Needless to say, this is a win in the bourbon community. So if you're one of those good retailers out there, reach out to your state reps for Sazerac and talk to them about it and see what they can do for you. The next bit of business is that we have done our Patreon giveaway for October and this month's winner is Travis Roden, who takes home a bottle of Buffalo, Tr Buffalo Trace single barrel store pick that was done in partnership by The Wine Rack, Harvest Restaurant, and yours truly of Bourbon Pursuit. This barrel completely sold out in less than 48 hours, so perhaps that's an indication of something. If you wanna be a part of the next drawing, make sure you go and support the show on Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Bourbon Pursuit and sign up for a donation level that helps support the show, but also gets you entered into the drawing. With that, enjoy this week's episode. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or thebourbonconcierge.com and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. And they're off for another Get 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at give270.org. Charitable gaming license ORG 0002703. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. So welcome back to an episode of the Bourbon Pursuit Podcast, the official podcast of bourbon. 
This is, uh, I'm here with Ryan today and, uh, you know, Kenny here as well as usual. And this is going to be a, a subject that, you know, Ryan and I were discussing before we started recording here. And I mean, we're, we're definitely kind of, well, me, I'm green to this. We were going through this and, and you saw you're, some you're turns. it. We're idiots yeah. on this. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeast is one of those things like some people like hype it up, you know, four roses is like, oh, our yeast. And some people like brag about it. Some are just like, uh, we get yeast from like everybody else. So I really don't understand what yeast does. And I'm interested to kind of, we know, I know the basics of it, but I, I'm really interested to see how impact it has on the bourbon we drink. Yeah, I mean, we know yeast is part of the process, but we don't know much about it, right? I mean, you you can talk to some other people, like when we, uh, you know, I, we interviewed. Actually, you weren't there for that one. We interviewed uh, uh, at Heaven Hill, and it wasn't Denny, but it was uh, uh, from Charlie. Like, Charlie from Heaven Women's yeah, Bourbon yeah. Experience, and said that you know. The one thing that they saved during the fire, uh, Heaven Hill Fire of 96 was that they had to go and they had to go grab that bucket of yeast because it's like, you know, this thing that's been around for generations and all this other kind of stuff. However, like, it's still kind of a mystery about what all I this know. really means, right, of, of all that sort of stuff. So today we brought on uh, not only somebody that knows a lot about yeast, but he is a doctor of yeast, right? So I think that's PhD, PhD <laughs> of yeast, right? So uh, today we have uh, Dr. Pat Heist. Dr. Pat Heist is... The I don't know I we didn't actually get his title before there but he is a lead at Firm Solutions as well as the Wilderness Trail Distillery so Pat welcome to the show thank you very much uh, so I guess before I screw up anymore like what's your official title what do you go by uh well I'm co-owner here uh, Shane Baker and I own uh, both Firm Solutions and Wilderness Trail Distillery uh, but I'm also the chief scientific officer so I you know take the lead on a lot of uh, R&D roles, you know, we do a lot of product development around yeast and bacterial contamination and just overall process optimization in distillery. So not only are we looking at things like flavor, but we're also looking at things like helping distilleries to maximize the amount of alcohol that they can make per bushel of grain. So we do a lot of different things for a lot of different distilleries. All right. So, yeah, I mean, that is one thing because... uh we, we kind of did our little bit of our research before we started this. And the real reason why we had Pat on is because I saw at the New Orleans Bourbon Festival, Pat gave a, a deep dive into yeast. And I said, that's a that's a great subject for this podcast. And I want this information to live on. And he actually was able to, you know, send over some of the uh, some of the slides that he presented. And I, I saw that you 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 do a lot of uh, things for like you said, over like 5000 distilleries is kind of what you guys are up to now. Well, 500 distilleries, yeah. Oh, so I gave you a little bit of... When little, Kenny says research, he literally just pulled open <laughs> the laptop and uh, scrolled through the... Soon to be 5,000, but currently only 500. So. Well, you're on the road You're on the road to 5,000. We'll put it that way. Yeah. Baby steps. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, you know, before we get into, you know, a lot of this stuff about uh, the yeast and the, the fermentation, the cooking, uh, I mean, distillation, all that sort of process... Talk about like your history in bourbon. Like, where did you come along and get enthralled with it, or was it just something that when you were at UK and going through your studies, you said, "Oh, okay, well, I like drinking, I like doing this." It kind of yeast. It all comes I together. Wanna, I want to do something. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I've always liked to drink. That was uh, probably the uh, <laughs> beginning of it all. But um, in college, my background and my interest really lied in microbiology. So studying, you know, bacteria and yeast and viruses and parasites and, you know, fungi, 
all kinds of different microorganisms. And I did, I had a very crooked path getting into distilling because I actually, uh, as I was talking to you guys earlier, my graduate degrees are in plant pathology. So I did a lot of work with farmers on diseases of field crops, which everybody knows, you know, there's grain crops involved with bourbon production. So it's actually a very big part of what we do. Um, my first real job out of college was a medical microbiology professor at the uh, medical school in Pikeville College. So I went from plant science, plant microbiology to human microbiology. And so the next logical step after that was pretty much to get into distilled spirits production. <laughs> and, uh, seemed kind of logical. And, and over in Pikeville, you know, that's where I lived for a few years after when I was at the medical school. And, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on moonshine and there's a lot of, you know, old school moonshine producers over there. And I guess, you know, kind of along with my interest in microbiology, uh, you know, that whole lore of moonshine production and obviously Kentucky bourbon production is, you know, in, in everyone's blood who uh, lives and uh, is raised here in, in Kentucky. So, um I started consulting for some companies that uh, marketed yeast to distilleries and ended up uh, doing some consulting. And then Shane and I formed Firm Solutions in 2006. And again, we market yeast to distilleries. Um, we provide technical support. And one thing about being a yeast provider is that the yeast pretty much gets the blame for every problem that you could possibly have at it. <laughs> so You're the yeah, you could have bad grain and it manifests itself in fermentation. Hey, why isn't this yeast working? So if you're going to get the blame for every problem, eventually you got to figure out how to solve other problems besides yeast issues. And so that's kind of what led to us, you know, being the company that get the phone calls for uh, other distilleries when they have issues. And so, um, you know, that was kind of the nemesis of getting into yeast. And then once we had a successful business uh, in Firm Solutions, we had the financial back backing to build a distillery. And so, and, and plus it was a very logical move for us. We do a lot of training for, um, you know, different organizations as well as different distilleries. And so having our own distillery kind of allowed us to bump our training game up quite a bit because we can actually have people here at our facility teaching about all this hardcore science while we're showing them how to run a process. So it's kind of a little bit of an intro. Yeah, it's kind of like in the grass business, a lot of factors like the weather and stuff. It's not exactly our uh, fault, but it's our problem. We have to deal with it. So I know exactly where you're coming from. So I guess another question I have about just the the firm solution business in general. I mean, you know, we were kind of talking when we were leading up to this. We talked about, you know, what yeast means in regards of like Heaven Hill. It's been around for 200 years or Maker's Mark and all these very long established companies. But like we know that the craft whiskey business is booming and it's not like they just like went in their backyard and found a strain of yeast and said, like, (laughs) here we go. Like we're in business. Right. So, I mean, that's that's where you all step in. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we help people understand. So, you know, if you're looking for a particular uh, type of yeast, I mean, we have our personal collection. We've got over 6,000 different yeast strains uh, that we've collected from uh, not only distilleries all over the world, but also from various environmental surfaces, you know, fruits and vegetables. And I mean, we find interesting yeast all the time um, just 
you know, looking around in, in our normal environment, I mean, you don't have to go much further than a fruit stand to find 10 different yeast strains. It's just a matter of deciding which ones are going to contribute positively to the flavor profile, depending on what kind of spirit you're making. And also, uh, it, they need to have a certain amount of vigor to where they can finish off sugar and make a, a certain amount of alcohol. So, is, yeah. No, I was going to say, yeah, this is ahead. fascinating to me. It kind of reminds me of like a, a weed dispenser or something. You have like all these different kinds of strands of marijuana and like give you different effects. And like <laughs> uh, with yeast, it's like I didn't fully understand there's that many strains of yeast that you can literally go pick out what profile you're looking at from the different yep. strains. Yeah. Well, yeast have different smells and they're also very sticky. So it kind of uh, relates a little bit. <laughs> so pretty similar. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I try smoking yeast, but you know. <laughs> I'm sure we've done crazier things though, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, before before we dive down more into like the fermentation of the yeast, you know, I'm kind of looking at the uh, the presentation where we're talking about just like the factors that go to influencing the bourbon and stuff like that. So I kind of want to start right there because uh, you talk about like grain quality as something that that goes into it. And we know that there's a lot of craft distillers and they try to do this farm to glass stuff. Uh, we know some of the big boys out there, they just say, we're going to buy, uh, you know, like say wild turkey. They All they want is non-GMO. Uh, you look at some other big boys and they all source from the same places. And maybe that is in Germany or maybe that's in somewhere else because they can get it at a, a, a higher volume at a lower cost or something like that. So talk about some of the grain quality and what that does, uh, you know, into a, uh, a bourbon mash bill. Well, I think, you know, grain quality, obviously, you know, just like if you go to the farmer's market and you're looking at, you know, a head of lettuce, you're going to pick out the rotten one or you're going to pick out the nice green one. You know, I mean, some of it's a common sense. Right. But, um, but there's also, in addition to quality of the grain, and normally when we talk about quality, we're talking about things like starch content, moisture content, whether or not it's got any type of uh, evidence of a fungal a manifestation or uh, insect damage or if it's broken or I mean there's a lot of problems you can have with grain you know does it have a bunch of pesticides sprayed on it does it have I mean does it have a lot of foreign material in it you know does if it's half corn cobs in there you know that's not good quality grain because you're not going to make a lot of ethanol out of corn cobs so um, there's a lot of factors relative to the quality of the grain but also just looking at the diversity of different grains. I mean, think about how many different varieties of corn there are. I mean, yellow corn, there's blue corn, red corn, white corn. Uh, you know, there's all these different heirloom varieties. And I think, you know, these craft distilleries and, you know, we're in this situation, too, where, you know, this is our distillery. We can do whatever we want, you know, and we do things like we want to do it and we make things that we'd like to drink. And so uh, I, I like to see a lot of this um, creativity that's going on with different grains. So not only grain quality, but just the diversity of choices of different grains. I mean, we work currently with one farmer here in Boyle County. It's Caverndale Farms. Um, they grow our corn and our wheat. And we're able to work with them and actually zero in on very specific varieties. Whereas if you're just buying grain on the open market, it might be from multiple uh, regions and it might be multiple varieties. So, so I guess of one of my questions is, is like, I, I guess you could say like it is an exciting time for experimentation because 
you know, somebody could be messing around with red corn or like the blue corn, but you know, typically it is, it's yellow or white corn is, is like the majority of what goes into it. I mean, when we think about this, like, does the, does the color have a factor in the outcome of the bourbon? I mean, it's still usually clear when it comes out, but I mean, yeah. is there a huge difference in the flavor profile too? Cause I'm not too sure if I'm sold there. There are differences. I wouldn't say huge differences, but there definitely are differences. Um, now from a business standpoint, if you're purchasing grain that you're getting, you know, a maximum of, of 60 to 90 bushels an acre compared to a grain that you're getting 200 bushels an acre, there's economics involved. You know, you can get a bushel of corn for three or four dollars, whereas, you know, red corn we've seen for as high as uh, fifty six dollars a bushel. So, um, yeah, I was talking bushels a minute ago. I don't know if I said pounds, but, you know, about three, three or four bucks a bushel for yellow corn. And, you know, up to $50 or $56 a bushel for red corn. So there's, you know, economic decisions to be made as well. I mean, you can be- make the best product in the world, but it's got to be economical. And, I mean, do you think some of that is like a, a marketing hype to it, too, to say like, oh, we only use red corn? Like, is it is it more of a marketing angle? Because it, from the way you're making it sound like from an economics at scale, it doesn't make like the biggest sense to go with something that is outside the norm, right? Well, when you talk about uh, making distilled spirits, I mean, it's a fairly, I mean, there's there's a good bit of profit in it organically compared to, for example, we also work with fuel alcohol distilleries. For every gallon of 200 proof alcohol they sell, they've got to make a profit at about $1.50 to $1.80 a gallon. We're paying as distilleries upwards of $23 per that same gallon just in federal taxes. So it's a completely different scale. So there is a little more leeway on spending money to make it. Uh, But to your point about, you know, is it really make that big of a difference? You know, I guess we'll see because there's really not too many products that have aged long enough to really to really see what they're all about. You know, I'm excited, though, about it. So I guess that another thing that you want to talk about that you brought up was like the pesticide stuff. We know that wild turkey is a very big like non-GMO um, yep. kind of producer. So when we when we think about just pesticides in general, like does is that just more or less a I guess you could say uh, something that the the distiller wants that that he or she sticks by and says like that's just like the line that I draw. Does a that have clause? Yeah, you know, because I mean, does it really have any any adverse effects? Or I mean, is that something that we're not going to know for? Years well, from now, right? I just well, know it. Well, yeah, from like Roundup Ready corn, it's you know it's much more profitable to use uh, stuff like that and cheaper than having organically grown corn. It's you know it just makes more well, much more financial sense. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know when somebody says something is organic, it's easy to say it, but is it really? Right. And then there's that whole debate, and you know we'll set that to the side. But uh, you know in terms of pesticides, I mean obviously. Um, you know, a lot of the pesticides that are used on foods are, are food quality pesticides. Um, however, um, you know, <clears throat> there are situations where, and again, nobody is intentionally trying to get anything with pesticides or any other type of compromised uh, grains. And, and these days they grow a lot of varieties that are naturally pest resistant rather than spraying pesticides. Um, it's just something you, you got to watch for. And, you know, this time of year, 
when you have, uh, you know, you're, you got people trying to clean out their bins to make space for the new harvest. Sometimes you get into to kind of some garbage on the bottom that, you know, whether it's pesticides or it's just low in starch or whatever the issue is, you know, you can see issues from time to time. And that's where we employ this lab I got behind me, uh, you know, and look at things like nitrogen content or, you know, there's a lot of different things. What is uh, the most common pesticides used, I guess, in corn? I, I, I would assume herbicides for weeds, but is it insecticides or fungicides? Um, well, you, you're you familiar with BT corn. I mean, that's, oh, yeah. a, that's a, a pesticide that's formed within the, uh, within the plant. Um, I don't really know. Bacillus thurginus, is that what you mean, or whatever? What's that? Bacillus thurginus or whatever. I think that I'm trying to remember the term from college. Uh, yeah, Bacillus thuringiensis, that's right. BT. Yeah, that's right. That's what, yeah, it produces a toxin that, uh, you know, protects against certain uh, boring insects. Right. But, um, yeah. Does that, does that all get, like, so would that all just get distilled out when it gets converted into the alcohol? Well, it's arguable because, you know, what's, what, what pesticide are you talking about? Um, you know, it, 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 is it volatile at all? Is it heat stable? Is it heat labile? You know, is it going to be destroyed in the presence of heat? So there's just a lot of considerations. I mean, we don't normally worry about things like pesticides just because it's rare that we're going to have a significant amount of pesticides on our grain. Right. Hell, I don't care. I just got done spraying Roundup right before <laughs> I came over here. So uh, I guess, is there any time that you could figure out before you get into like mashing or distilling that there's a problem with any of the grains that you are sourcing? Like, is, is there any red flags that you're supposed to be looking for? Yeah, like I mentioned before, we're certainly looking for moisture content. You know, uh, last time I checked the Chicago Board of Trade price on a bushel of water, it was a lot cheaper than a bushel of grain. So if you're buying high moisture grain, you're just paying money for water. Um, same thing if it's got foreign material in it. If it's got corn cobs or rocks or, or other things, you know, you're paying money for a bunch of garbage. So um, those are some things that we look at before, you know, as a truck pulls up, we're going to be doing moisture content. Um, we are looking at starch content. And then we're looking at does it have any garbage in there that we, we need to be concerned about. So those are just a few of the things. Then we can get deeper into fungal mycotoxins, which was one of the things I mentioned in, in the New Orleans talk. Uh, it, it's a rare occurrence, but it does happen from time to time. We just actually had some rye that we sent off for uh, mycotoxin testing because we were a little suspicious uh, due to some uh, discoloration that we saw. It ended up not being a concern, but, you know, that was kind of uh, an example of something that we had to, you know, we noticed something and we followed up on that observation with, uh, you know, some testing. So what's the, uh, I mean, we, we gave a lot of love to corn right there. Is there anything that's special about either uh, wheat or rye or barley or anything like that? Well, um, first of all, if you look at Kentucky bourbon production, there's not a lot of rye grown in Kentucky. So there, there is a good bit of wheat and corn. So all the corn and all the wheat that we use here at our distillery is produced locally. Um, the rye, they are looking to grow it here, but there's just not been a big demand for it. My understanding is that, you know, here in Kentucky, if you have a better chance of getting off with some rye, 
or with wheat rather, if you double crop rye in there with it, you can have rye volunteering in your wheat. So that's one issue. And, and the, con- the weather conditions. Yeah, our weather's not very conducive for rye. Yeah, yeah. Rye. Well, we're a Kentucky proud operation. We try to get all Kentucky grains if we can. But, you know, most distilleries are buying rye from out of the state just because most of the really good rye is grown, you know, in the upper Midwest. It's a finicky uh, grass. It's it's a, yep. it needs to be babied. It needs a nice, cool north northern low humidity climate. Yep, and there's a lot of pathogens that take it out, yeah. and, and a lot of moisture here that causes issues. So, um, the barley, you know, that's something else. You know, they don't. I mean, there's there's not much barley grown in Kentucky either. So, the vast majority of malted barley that's used in the state of Kentucky is not from not grown in Kentucky. So, gotcha. those little nuances about. Um, some of the other grains. So, so get technical on me on when a, uh, you know, when corn as a starch turns into sugar, which makes alcohol, like what's some of like the, the actual technical aspects of that and what makes that happen? Well, okay. So you start with the grain, that grain is milled, you know, to increase the surface area. So you take whole grains, you, you grind them up into flour and that exposed starch, I mean, if you think of starch like a, a string of beads, for example, and each, each bead on that string is a glucose or sugar subunit. And so the enzymes that are present in the malted grains, malted means the grains were germinated, um, there's enzymes present there, or, or some distilleries will add commercial enzymes, uh, but those enzymes will take that that starch or that string of beads and just cut it up into little pieces, eventually resulting in the individual beads, which are glucose molecules. And that's what the yeast needs to uh, take up and produce alcohol. So it's, it's essentially a digestion that's occurring. Okay. So I guess, yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Sorry to interrupt up. No, the yeast really can't use starch. It's too complex. It's got to be broken down into its individual sugar subunits. And so that's done by enzymes that are present either in the malted grains or in enzymes that are supplemented. So at this point, are we are we in like the the mash or like the cooking stage at this point then? Yeah. So that would be the, the cooking stage is where you're blending those uh, milled grains in with hot water and the heat of the water also is important because the enzymes that convert starch to fermentable sugars are the most active at temperatures above, let's say, uh, above 150 degrees Fahrenheit and even up in the 185, 190 Fahrenheit range. So a lot of people think, well, you know, I'm destroying my enzymes with that heat. If you get up above boiling, that would be the case. But, you know, like at our distillery, we normally don't cook any higher than 192 Fahrenheit strictly because we're trying to preserve the activity of those enzymes. But that's so where the starch that, conversion is that Go into like the mash cooker and it's bubbling? Well, that would be, so the, the, the mash cooker is where you're applying high heat and you're adding your grains. So in our distillery, we're adding our corn at about 190 or wheat or rye, depending on what kind of recipe we're making. We're adding that somewhere in the 155 uh, range. And then our malted barley goes in around 150 to 145 because that's got the enzymes. It needs to be, uh, you know, treated with a little less heat 
Um, yeah. I think you're thinking more or less maybe the fermentation stage, right? Yeah. Where it's, where it's yeah. bubbling. Yeah. But so, there is, there is, yeah, there is like a cooking stage. I remember because we took a tour one time and then you like, they open it up and like, there's these things that are just spinning everywhere and like mash is just flying. Yeah. It was like super, super hot too. Right. So, yep. so you're, you're adding different grains at different temperatures and times during the, uh, during the mash, uh, I guess, cooking process or whatever. Yeah. And then that's cooled. And then that's moved over to the fermenter. That's where the yeast is added. And that's where you get that consumption of sugar production of alcohol and you also get a lot of carbon dioxide being given off which is what provides the bubbling in fermentation i know we've asked this question before but it's good to always reiterate uh getting you know always in front of people but like what's the difference or like what's the definition of like a sour mash versus like a i don't know what they call sweet mash too so like what is the difference because you can see it in the labels however not everybody knows exactly what it means yep so uh, sour mash, it's kind of like if you're making sourdough bread, you know, you take a little bit of the culture that your grandma gave you and you mix it in with your bread. And then that's kind of provides the I mean, in some respects, it's contamination and other, uh, you know, maybe a pH reduction um, that leads to a certain kind of a flavor. And so in sour mash, whiskey or bourbon production, you are basically so we talked a minute ago about combining milled grains with hot water in the cooking process, right? So in the sour mash process, you're taking part of your water that you're using on the front end is going to be the leftover byproduct from a previous distillation. It's called stillage. So you have, you know, when a fermentation is finished, that's called beer. That beer goes into the still, the alcohol is removed, and then the remaining um, you know, grain and water and other contents that is collectively referred to as stillage. That stillage uh, is also called back set and because it's sent back to the front and that's what uh, sour mash is. So at our facility, we do what's called a sweet mash. We don't incorporate any leftovers from a previous distillation. We're starting with all fresh water. And so there's reasons why you would do that or why you wouldn't do that. Well, what are those? Yeah, what to say. It was like fetus <laughs> baby. Don't leave us hanging. Yeah, out. really. Well, heck, I was gonna have to wait for you to ask, man. I <laughs> You're like I'm being interviewed, right? <laughs> right? That's right. Um, a couple reasons why you would run want to run. Uh, most of the very large distilleries do sire mash process. So one thing, if you think about energy consumption, you know, you're adding all, you're blending all this water, and you got to heat all this water. Well, if I've got stillage coming off of my my still that's 150 plus degrees, that's a lot of temperature uh, savings that are energy savings that I'm going to get if I use that as part of my water. The other thing is, is that distilleries have to get rid of that stillage. Farmers come to our distillery and take it away by the truckload. And some distilleries are in kind of a bind about, I mean, even after our next expansion, we're going to be producing about 250,000 gallons of stillage every week. So we got to get rid of that stuff. I mean, it's a major factor in a business model of running a distillery. So if we can incorporate a great deal of that back into our process, then that would be less stillage we'd have to get rid of. So those are some like business reasons why you would want to do a sour mash. Some scientific reasons might include re uh, pH reduction. So you have all the organic acids that were produced in that previous fermentation and if you donate those into a new batch of mash, 
you're getting the benefit of a reduction in pH. And what that helps with, at least in theory, is that it, it, it limits the amount of bacterial contamination. And that kind of leads us into the other part of, you know, what makes a sire mash. Uh, you know, it's the sireness of, uh, you know, maybe some of those organic acids that are that were produced by the bacteria in a previous fermentation. It's the funk left over. Yep. Yep. It actually, like, think about sour beer production. I don't know if you guys have had much uh, of the sour beers they're producing these days, but there's some really interesting flavors. And that's an example where you can take some of these contaminating organisms that are contributing to that funkiness of the distillate and you're tasting what they're you know what they grow like kind of in their more natural state um and 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 you know chemically if you look at what's going on in the barrel uh we know that uh organic acids condense with alcohols to form esters you know anybody that knows anything about bourbon has probably heard of the the family of chemicals called esters which contribute significantly to a lot of the fruity or other notes that you get in bourbon so those organic acids that are produced by bacteria um, very likely are, you know, forming esters during barrel maturation. Man alive, I'm getting schooled <laughs> over here. This is this is crazy. So at this point, we're we're into fermentation right now. So I, that's kind of where I want to move next, right? Because this is kind of where you get to shine, right? Because during the fermentation, when it moves over to the fermentation tank is when you add whatever one of the 6,000 strains of yeast that you have, right? If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon. The farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it uh, a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And you can get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. During the fermentation, when it moves over to the fermentation tank is when you add whatever one of the 6,000 strains of yeast that you have, right? So I, I kind of want to talk, uh, you know, first you know, what's going on in there? Like, how is yeast contributing to it? Um, you know, get as technically as you want. Then I kind of want to talk about uh, a little bit about flavor profiles of it as well. Okay. 
So in the fermentation tank, you've got those, um, you've got that very sugar rich mash that you've just made in the cooking or mashing process and you're, you're adding yeast. So it's cooled down to a nice temperature of around 85 degrees Fahrenheit on average. Some distilleries start a little higher, some go a little lower. Um, you add the yeast. The yeast, again, this is a microorganism. It's a living organism that is going to consume those sugars. And it is going to produce alcohol and other flavor components. Again, we've got esters, there's aldehydes. There's a lot of different things. Um, there's also breakdown products of the grain. You know, as, as those sugars are being metabolized, there are other uh, chemicals that are liberated that may or may not end up in the distillate. So um, that process, if you look in terms of yeast populations, we're probably maxing out at somewhere around 150 to 200 million yeast cells per milliliter of fermentation mash. So if you consider, you know, the end of your finger about that much, about every this much mash, uh, you have about 150 million yeast cells in there converting those sugars into alcohol. Um, that process takes about two to five days, depending on what temperature, what yeast strain, what type of grains you're fermenting, uh, and other factors. And, um, you know, after that point, you have hopefully deplete, or, uh, depleted the sugar and you have the maximum amount of alcohol. I mean, that's the name of the game here is make as much alcohol as you can. If we're making a beer, we might want to leave a little bit of that sugar behind because you're actually drinking the end result of fermentation. Here, our end product is going to be the distillate that we take off of that. Mm -hmm. How do you uh, prevent contamination? Because, I mean, yeast is like all over the place, right? I mean. Yep. Well, first of all, you are starting with an abnormally huge population of the yeast that you intentionally put in there. Okay. okay. So it kind of, it, and it's like I said, if you've got 150 million cells per milliliter and you have a, a, a random piece of dust falling in there every now and then it's, you know, there's, it would take a very strong organism to outcompete. <laughs> We're talking like a dead body at this point is yeah. what you have to really have to contaminate it or yeah, something. Yeah, it's, now we've seen some squirrels stuck in recirculation lines at distilleries <laughs> before. So you don't want to rule that out. Um, but you know, it, there's really no way to completely prevent bacterial contamination. I, I mean, guess that you, you got so much of that one variety of yeast, it's going to outcompete any yeast that would happen to get in there. Well, that's that's the idea. However, if you don't keep your fermenters clean um, or you have a situation where you're piping, I mean, you can imagine how. So if I'm cooking in one tank to make my mash, I'm cooling that down and then I'm sending it through a set of pipes over to another tank where I'm going to do my fermentations. You know, how clean is all that stuff? If I'm sending it through a dirty pipe, I might pick up a whole bunch of bacteria before I've even added the yeast. So those are some examples of how you can get bacteria in there. Most distilleries um, here in Kentucky that produce beverage alcohol are using open top fermenters. So things can get in there, you know, bugs possibly could land. And again, it just comes back to distillery sanitation, you know, keeping a very, you know, if you got flies, buzzing all over the place you know they'll get into your mash so you want to you know keep a very uh, sanitary environment you want to keep insect populations controlled and all that kind of stuff but those are some ways that bacteria can get in 
once they're in there, they're growing. You know, a, a yeast reproduces about once every hour and a half to two hours. A bacterium produces reproduces every fifteen to twenty minutes. So very quickly, the bacteria can build up to problematic populations. Now, very interestingly, you know, this is a topic very dear to us because it's one of our primary uh, areas of business is helping distilleries control bacterial contamination as well as understand what type of bacteria that they have that might be positively contributing to their flavor profiles. So, um, you know, the good news about the bacteria that contaminate distilleries, and again, we've been studying this for over 10 years, and we've got a collection of over 15,000 different bacteria that we've collected from distilleries all over the world. And one thing that's very interesting is those bacteria are a lot, largely the same ones that are being sold in probiotic supplements now. You know, all these different probiotics and, and kombucha. And microflora in your gut. Yeah, absolutely. Well, all these organisms we've been collecting for the last 10 years and kind of treating as the bad guys in distillation or in fermentation. Now we're in the nutraceuticals business. <laughs> so here's a question I get, like when I'm battling diseases in grass or whatever, you know, I apply fungicides, but, you know, there are a lot of, like you said, a lot of beneficial bacteria and fungi doing things to, you know, help the grass with mycorrhiza or whatever. And, but how do you, I guess, target the specific bacteria that are causing harm versus just wiping out all the bacteria? Well, um, you would have to very, in a very controlled manner, add in the ones you want, if that's your goal. There's, there's very few facilities nowadays that are purposely adding bacteria, uh, or, or I guess rather purposely adding specific bacteria. There are ways, uh, like if you maybe do a short cook on your mash, you can leave organi more contaminating organisms that were in the grain alive and so you kind of allowing some contamination to grow. Um, you know, some there, there's some different tricks that can be done to if you actually want to allow uh, organisms to grow. However, you know, when you know, as experts to study this, for every hundred bacteria that we find that that would likely contribute favorably to the flavor, there's going to be a few that we don't really want in there. You know, I don't know about you guys, but I don't want the causative agent of bloody diarrhea in infants to be part of my <laughs> flavor profile in bourbon. So, um, you know, <laughs> I had to say that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, th that'd be an example of the kind of organism we don't want in there, you know. But apart from flavor considerations, really, I think one of the bigger worries of uh, bacterial contamination is that we're reducing our yield. We're not making as much alcohol as we could be making. I mean, in a, real, in a real serious bacterial contamination situation, you can lose up to half your alcohol. And if that happens fermenter after fermenter, you know, hey, I'm supposed to make 150 barrels a day and I'm only making 70. I got a problem here. I got yeah. somebody's got a big problem here. And then you take that up to a fuel alcohol facility. I mean, some of our customers have fermenters that are over 900,000 gallons a piece. So how much do you think they're losing when they get 50 percent yield reduction? It's millions of dollars a day. So luckily for them. So they often, call you. Yep, absolutely. Yep. So and good for them is a lot of times it's kind of like if you've drove a crappy car for long enough, you know every little sound and, and what it is. And so a lot of times we can hear the scenario and very quickly respond, sometimes on the phone, you know. 
sometimes they'll you'll, you almost hear the phone drop of them running to do what you told them to do, you know. <laughs> so I, I kind of want to talk a little bit more about the yeast strains here in themselves, right? So you have over 6,000 that at, are firm solutions, but what what how many of those can actually be used, like say in bourbon production, right? You know, you're talking about, you know, ethanol and fuel production and stuff like that. But when we're talking about bourbon production, we're talking about flavor and stuff like that. Like how many can actually be used? Are we, are we narrowed down to like a baker's dozen here or something or what? Well, we currently market about nine of those strains and use about nine of those strains in our process. Um, We have good information on hundreds of those strains and then there are several thousand of those strains that we have yet to characterize. I mean, it takes a lot of, I mean, we do a lot, have to do a lot of DNA fingerprinting and genome sequencing and, you know, actually get into the DNA forensic level uh, to, I mean, w- when you isolate a yeast and you see it under the microscope and you know, hey, that's a yeast. Well, you don't know if it's a Saccharomyces cerevisiae or a Cluveromyces or a Pischia species. I mean, there's a lot of different ones. And then, so if it's a Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is the common yeast used in beer, wine, and distilled spirits, is it going to be one that, again, can um, utilize sugars and make as much alcohol as I need, as well as have a favorable flavor profile? So there's a lot of questions. So uh, Henrik asked a question, uh, true or false? I've heard that yeast contributes about 15% of the flavor profile to a final bourbon. Man, that's a tough debate to get involved with, really, because there's all these percentages flying around. Well, percent, right? (laughs) You're selling yeast. Yeah, I mean, you know, I would say that that's probably fairly close estimate, but it's really hard. I mean, because I mean, the yeast is making all the alcohol, so if the alcohol flavor is, I mean, you know, how much is that in the flavor? So it's kind of hard to pinpoint, but I would say, you know, somewhere around there. He asked one more question. Uh, he said, you know, when you look at some of these fermenters, uh, like towards the end, there's like this thick layer on top. It's almost like you could scoop it with a cup and like it's it's like a sponge cake almost. Uh, but yep. and then some of the some other ones, there's not, you know, is this actually dependent upon the type of yeast that's in there? Well, <clears throat> um, probably not so much the type of yeast as to the amount of grain per amount of water. So, for example, when we're running our pot still, we run what's considered to be a higher gravity mash. That means we have more grain and less water. So out of that mash, we're gonna get a higher percentage of alcohol. And in that case, you know, if you've got more grains in there, there's more of a chance that those grains are gonna be pushed to the top during a very vigorous stage of fermentation and form that cap on the top. Whenever we're running our column still, you know, we're, we're having to rely on that mash to flow down through our column and so we have to set that at a, a lower gravity. So it's it's got more water in it. And in those cases, we don't often see a cap. But again, it just depends. I and mean, we just ran some fermenters for, <clears throat> or that had some heirloom red corn in them. And I mean, it almost looked like you could have walked across the top of it. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you couldn't have, but uh, it looked as if you could. I mean, it's like a barren desert on top. It's all cracked. Like or, you know, I was say, Jesus <laughs> walked on mash bills here. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, you kind of almost walked in the next piece. You know, you talked about low gravity and then there's something else that you were talking about earlier called like high gravity. Like what's the difference in, in what that means in regards of like how big a fermenter is? Like, is that, is that really what it means or what? No, it's, it's okay. So if I'm making a hundred gallons of mash, 
I'm going to use X amount of corn, okay? And that's going to put me at a certain gravity. Well, if I add more corn, that's going to increase my gravity, but I still got the same volume. I would add less water and more grain, you see? So that's really what gravity is about. And, and again, the grain is what contains the sugar that equates to alcohol. <clears throat> so the more grain that I put in there, I mean, eventually, if you keep putting grain in there, you're not even going to be able to stir it anymore. It's going to be back to dry again. But, you know, you have a happy balance between something that I can agitate in a tank, something that I can pump through pipes, and also something that the yeast is going to be able to use all the sugar. So, you know, whether you're talking about bricks or balling or gravity or Plato, there's a lot of different, uh, you know, uh, scientific ways that we can estimate sugar. We actually use a piece of equipment here in the lab called a high-performance liquid chromatography. And so if, you know, on one hand, we get a very simple gravity reading, but with the HPLC, we can see, you know, well, how much glucose do I have? How much maltose? How much maltotriose? Are my dextrins being converted into fermentable sugars? Am I producing organic acids? There's a lot of questions you can answer with this one test on this one very sophisticated piece of equipment. It's already over my head, so <laughs> I'm not even going to try to try to attempt to ask a question about any one of those. If it's if it's over like eight letters, like I'm probably not going to understand it anyway. So uh, there was another good question here by Michael Urado. He says, uh, you know, is it is it because of bacteria? But what what is the cause of, say, like a mutated yeast? Um, he says he's read about that, that, you know, say Jim Rutledge discovered it. Uh, it was used at the Four Roses Give Shop for like a 17 year release at one time, as well as the 2012 and 2013 uh, limited edition single barrel offerings. So what what actually factors into that? Well, I mean, that's that is a, a very complex, you know, complicated subject. And if you look at how, you know, how does diversity occur over time with any type of, you know, whether it be humans or yeast, it's through mutations that arise. And, you know, a mutation, um, let's say that you run a very high temperature fermentation um, and you have mutants in there that that are more able to grow at higher temperatures. So maybe the what you started with becomes diminished and those those heat tolerant mutants sort of take over because you are constantly selecting for those heat tolerant mutants or it could be any any other one of them you know could be low ph or acidic conditions would select for a particular type of uh, organism so um with the yeast where you really gotta i mean like where we sell yeast we market what's called active dried yeast so we're going back to a master culture whenever we're making that yeast and so we're kind of going back to the original culture if we are you know if we're fermenting here at our distillery and then we're saving a little bit of that inoculum for the next batch and then we're just kind of going through time that's where you can get yeast mutating. And again, it's just such a complicated area. You can have many, many things. Many, some of those things would be detrimental. Uh, some of them maybe not so detrimental. Okay, so I've got one more. Maybe it's like a folklore question because I did a, I did a, a tour at Castle and Key and I was there with Marianne and a few other people and they were saying, you know, we were trying to figure out like how can we replicate everything that was done here at Castle and Key and and they were saying that they were looking at old fermenters and they were going through old pipes. And 
and they were trying to scape everything and they're like get q tips well and they really did and that's so they're like i think we found like a piece of yeast and so they tried to go and like find the closest possible yeast strain they could to try and replicate what they were doing at old taylor at that time now is that something that you really think is possible or is it just something that's a it's a good marketing ploy at this point yeah absolutely i mean we've actually done we do a a, a good bit of forensic work for a different distillery so um, for example, uh, we had a situation, we had a, a distillery that brought us an old yeast jug from, the, it was actually uh, in the museum, the whiskey museum over in Bartstown. And uh, this particular family um, retrieved their jug, brought it over here to us. We attempted to culture something out of it, which you can imagine after 100 plus <laughs> years, there's not going to be much alive in there. But we were able to retrieve some residues that allowed us to extract DNA and we performed a, like a DNA fingerprinting exercise and we were able to match the DNA from that dead strain in that yeast jug to a strain that we have in our collection. So we were able to essentially um, revive that yeast that had been used in their family distillery through uh, some forensic DNA uh, level technology. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> I mean, we both we both said it, but I mean, I, that really is. Uh, so the a distillery really can't say they're using non-GMO because it sounds like you can GMO a yeast, you know, strain. Well, that's not GMO. Again, what well, we did, is we basically got the fingerprint of it, and then we just matched it up to an existing natural strain. But you're cloning in, like duplicating it, right? I mean, yeah, well, like, I mean, you're, you're, but you're not changing the genetics of it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. All we did is we just looked into the DNA and we said, okay, this is what that strain looks like. And then we found that same person in our collection. Gotcha. So we didn't, we didn't have to. Now, we do a good bit of genetic modification in yeasts for the fuel alcohol business. You know, I was mentioning to you, um, you know, uh, these fuel alcohol plants, they're not using any, any malted grains. So they're actually purchasing commercial enzymes. And so one of the big projects that we have going on here in our lab is to engineer our fuel alcohol yeast strain with a glucoamylase enzyme that would provide millions of dollars of value for each distillery that we do business with. Interesting. Per year. Are you taking investors? <laughs> uh, well, you know, maybe. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we're going to, we're going to try to speed this up a little bit. So I, I kind of want to talk about, you know, right here as you, you know, we, we talked a lot about like what could happen to the yeast during the fermentation. We talked about the changes that had happened. Um, now you're at the pro you're at the process of actually monitoring it. So like when you're monitoring during a, a fermentation process and you're monitoring what the yeast does, like, what are you actually looking for, uh, during this process? Okay. So several things. One thing that we're monitoring is temperature, temperature of the fermentation. I mean, the yeast, as they consume that sugar and produce alcohol, they're giving off a lot of heat. So we have to keep that temperature down. So we're monitoring that. We're also regulating, you know, cooling water or whatever we got to do to get that temperature to be maintained. You know, we don't want to go over 95 Fahrenheit, for example, in fermentation. And that's where, so, the, that's where the coils come in too, right? Yeah, that's right. And so the other thing we want to monitor, as I mentioned earlier, we want to check the yeast populations. So at any given time, what is my population of yeast? You know, like I said, a good healthy fermenter should have around 150 to 200 million cells per milliliter. The other thing I want to look at, it's, I mean, it's important to know how many yeast I have, but how many of them are alive? 
<coughs> so if I've got 200 million sales per milliliter, but they're all dead, that's not going to do me a whole lot of good. So we have uh, certain types of stains that we use to, and this is all done microscopically. So um, yeast counts, yeast viability. We're also looking at budding. Yeast reproduces by a process called budding. And so we can actually see that under the microscope. And we wanted to record uh, what is the percentage of budding. So we're looking for a budding percentage somewhere around 20%, for example. Outside of microscopic analysis, we're also doing, you know, again, the HPLC, high performance liquid chromatography. And there's where we're looking at sugar consumption. So again, at the end of when I send that, that beer to my still, I want to have used up all that sugar. So day by day, we're taking HPLC readings. Look, you know, am I making the same amount of alcohol? Am I utilizing my sugar? We also get um, a reading on organic acids like lactic acid and acetic acid. Lactic acid is not produced by back or it's not produced by yeast. It's produced by bacteria. So when we see that, we know that's an indicator of bacterial contamination. And when those levels get to be a certain amount, that's where we'll kick in additional. Okay, now we need to culture out of there and get those bacteria. You know, four years from now, if we have a, a batch that's really super good, we want to be able to go back in time and say, well, they had these very specific contaminants in there. And maybe to recreate that, we have to incorporate those contaminants. So we'll at what everything. point do you get too scientific? You know, where is it? Well, uh, I think we got to that point a long time ago. <laughs> I was going to say, he's a doctor. I think yeah. the scientific method is what he lives by, right? So That's right. Yep. But it's like, you know, the distillers back in the day, they didn't have all this. I mean, maybe they had some of it, but um, not to the level. Of, not to the level of the technology you have now. And yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. What temperature are you at? Oh, it's boiling. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Uh, so, you know, we're, this is awesome, by the way. Like, this is this is so much good information that we're getting out of here. And I'm looking at some of the other slides that, that you had sent. And the only other things that, that are kind of standing out for me that I'm, I'm not entirely sure of, like, when you say, like, gram-positive bacteria and, neg and gram-negative bacteria, like, what does that mean? And then is that something that is just uh, an anecdote to this? Or does this have something also to do with the bourbon production? Like, kind of explain that. Yeah. So bacteria, uh, there's a staining method called the gram stain that divides bacteria into two major groups, gram positive and gram negative. And those differences are largely based on their cell wall and cell membrane characteristics. So most of the time, what we see in fermentation are gram positive bacteria like lactobacillus, pediococcus, Ycella, uh, enterococcus. There's a whole bunch of different ones. Lactobacillus is probably the most prevalent. And then there's a lot of different species of each one of those different genera. So those would be what we would consider to be kind of normal bacteria. I mean, we find them on grains. They're, they're in water. I mean, it's no wonder why they're in there. And those are the ones, again, those are the same bacteria that, you find, that you're eating in yogurt and that, you know, that people actually like. Gram negatives have a subset of bacteria that kind of fit into that category, like acetobacter and gluconobacter, um, which are sort of grouped in with the lactic acid bacterium. Uh, acetobacter produce is historically been used to produce vinegar. Acetic acid and vinegar are the same thing. So acetobacter. Um, so again, that's, that's one, a gram negative that you'll see in there, but there are some other gram negatives. Like I mentioned, the, uh, 
the uh, causative agent of bloody diarrhea in infants. You know, that that's another example of a gram negative that just by the thought of it, you know, I don't want that in my dang bourbon. Um, but, you know, and, and, and plus they could be pathogenic. So I've got, if I've got a, a facility and I'm running, you know, 10, 100,000 gallon fermenters and I've got, you know, 10 to the 7th population of a pathogenic organism in there and I don't even know whether I do or not, you know, that, that could potentially be a, an issue. Now, that, that's a very rare thing, but it's something that we feel is important to uh, monitor, not only from a flavor aspect, but, you know, from a from yield aspect and, and just knowing about your process. What's the what's the side effect of saying, like, uh, putting a wild yeast into a bourbon mash bill? Well, um, it could give a very desirable flavor but it could steal away most of the sugar and make other byproducts besides alcohol. Just really. And, and by the way, we need to, we also need to define for me, cause I am not smart here. Like what would you categorize like as a wild yeast that you, besides me just going outside and scraping some dirt and, you know, finding yeah. something rather than going Get through your, your lightning bug jar out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> rather than like going to your catalog and, you know, getting a bag of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. If you, if you take a yeast and you intentionally put it into there, it's, I wouldn't consider that a wild yeast. I mean, if, you know, it's whatever you're intentionally right? yeah. put in there, it's, <laughs> it's kind of like, like the being non-wild. Things that are wild or things that you didn't intentionally put in there would be wild yeast. So you could even have a strain of Saccharomyces cerevisiae that is a perfectly good bourbon producer that makes its way into your process and that, if you, if you have the ability to separate it out from the yeast that you intentionally put in there, that could be considered a wild yeast. So, at at very general level, that's what a wild yeast is—just something that you didn't intentionally put in there. It's like a weed. It's a you know just something yeah. that's undesirable. Yeah. Well, it, it it in in most cases it's going to be undesirable. Uh, but in in some cases, it, it can actually have a good effect. And there are some distilleries that try to get contamination. I was just at a distillery a couple weeks ago, and I mean, you talking about some funk going on in that fermenter? I mean, I could look, I could see this film over the top of it, and then and I even kind of called out, "Hey, man, that looks like a piscia species." And he's like, "Yeah, it probably is." Oh yeah, I, I've got plenty of those. I don't need any more. <laughs> But uh, those are useful for, have you ever heard of kefir? Like dairy kefir and water kefir. It's kind of like kombucha tea. Uh, it's one of these fermented beverages that people are drinking and yeah, going I'm crazy for. kombucha, but not kefir. <coughs> yep, kefir. So kava tea. The, what's that? Kava. Have you ever had kava tea? Um, is it kind of like kombucha? Yeah, kind of, sort of. Okay. I've had a lot of those things because again, we're in, we're in that business now because we're trying to utilize our collection here. <laughs> right. I mean, this was, this was fantastic. Uh, I I'm honestly out of questions when it comes to like the yeast side of things. Like uh, this was, uh, you know, by far one of the most informative episodes that we've done in a while, just in regards of just something that seems so, I don't know. It's, I, it is molecular. It is, it, but it is. It's not necessarily minute because you can see it. You're adding it to it, but it does have a huge impact on what's actually happening here during the process, right? Yeah, it's it's very cool. Uh, I, I enjoyed it because 
I know just a little bit enough to be dangerous. It kind of relates a little bit to the horticulture and plant side. It, it is living organisms, so it kind of is relatable. But uh, I could nerd out for you with you for a little while. I've got like two more questions, I think. So w- at what point is the yeast like out of this? Like it's out of the equation. Um, is it like during the distillation, after the distillation, once it's in the barrel? Like when is the yeast like stop playing a role? Well, um, essentially, once the sugar has been depleted in the fermenter, the yeast are going to, at least to some degree, survive until you send them to their death in the still. So they've just got done working very hard for you, consuming all those sugars, making all that alcohol, and then you basically send them to the death chamber. So (laughs) that's essentially... uh, So do they essentially like overwinter or like, I guess like, you know, a fungi overwinters until it's basically the temperature and moisture, the environment's conducive for it to be active again? Does it yeah. create like fruiting bodies or? Um, yeah. I mean, yeast have uh, complex life cycles. The, the part of the life cycle that we're seeing in fermented alcohol, you know, beverage production is the asexual uh, phase of the organism, but it, it actually does undergo sexual reproduction and hyphal uh, production in other more complex stages of its life cycle that we don't uh, see in in a fermentation environment. So as you know, out in the wild, you know, as these yeast are, you know, maybe they're living on the surface of a peach, and then that peach rots, and then you know that organism overwinters and then makes its way, you know, reproduces. And I mean, there's a whole complex bunch of factors about you know how yeast survive in the environment, but they undergo other phases of their life cycle in the environment that allows them to overwinter and to survive and to maintain a certain amount of diversity, you know, through mutations and, you know, sexual reproduction is where, you know, you're getting two different strains coming together. Gotcha. And then uh, another thing, cause you know, I, I, I consume a fair amount of beers as well. Right. Um, you know, we all have our, you know, collection of, you know, nice in, you know, high end beers and stuff like that. But, there's been on probably I can count on at least at least two hands how many times I've had beers that have been recalled because of, um, you know, they, they say something went wrong. The enzymes, it's sour it's funk now. Like, does yeast play a, a, a big part of that and towards the beer process? Because, I mean, I know that I've had I've got one sitting in my fridge right now. It's been recalled and I've tried it. And I'm like, yeah, this kind of tastes horrible now. But uh where where does the yeast play in that? Because as because as we had mentioned before, you know when you're doing a, a bourbon mash, you're you're dumping a lot of yeast in there because you want to get as much alcohol out of it as you can. However, when you're doing a beer, you're probably not doing as much yeast. So is when you're pushing this through and you're not necessarily killing it off by putting it to the, the uh, through the still, um, it's still alive and well and kicking in the beer. And so that's is that a big reason why it does go sour or go bad? Well, um, yeah, I mean, if you look at how beer is produced, and, you know, again, we, we offer beer strains as well. We don't discriminate just uh, distilleries. We offer <laughs> beer and wine strains, and we do a lot of work for beer and wine producers. But, um, you know, if you think about beer production, you are removing the solid material prior to fermentation. So you're, you're, you're fermenting in what's called a clear mash, Okay, so the yeast will actually settle out to the bottom in beer production and you'll reuse those. So you can imagine that if I'm reusing something 
there's a potential for contamination to build up in that depending on how many times that I reuse it. And so beer producers will often have a set number of times that they're going to be able to reuse that yeast before they'll start totally from scratch with fresh yeast. So in beer production, you would have a little bit more propensity for uh, contamination, but beer producers typically see a beer producer uh, fermenting an open top vessel, for example. So there's just a lot less, um, um, I guess, you just don't want to get contamination in a beer unless you're intentionally trying to make a sour beer. Now we so, know. Yeah, recycling the yeast definitely uh, contributes to that in beer production. Gotcha. So uh, to kind of round this out, we had one question that was from Ben Jackson that kind of relates to the ver- our very questions at the beginning about corn. Um, you know, when you are sourcing grains, is it better to get it at, you know, how, how old should they be to like get as much hydration out of there? Three months, six months, a year, whatever it is. Um, to get as much hydration. Well, you, you mean, you said you like, you want a low, um, concentrate of water in it, right? Yep. So like, yeah. what, how long do you like, want it to be fresh? aged in the silo or whatever? Well, here's the thing. So whenever they bring it out of the field, it might be in the upper teens, you know, like 18, 19, 20% moisture. And then they'll dry it, uh, using certain types of air drying technology. Typically like here at our distillery, we'll reject grain that's 16% or higher moisture. We're targeting about a 14% moisture. And again, it it could be harvested this week and be brought to our distillery next week at 14% moisture. So it's really not a matter of sitting around. I mean, with some grains, there uh, there are physiological changes that are occurring in that grain even after it it has been detached from its mother plant. Um, And those changes, like, uh, you know, if you're familiar with seed dormancy, you know, how, how, what, what types of physiological development does a seedling have to undergo before that seed is capable of germination? There are chemical reactions that are occurring over time that we know, like in wheat and rye, for example, that can contribute to foaming. So whenever we are getting fresh wheat, we're going to be on the lookout for fermenters that are foaming or same with rye. So that's an example of where you would actually prefer a grain that has been harvested for a few months as opposed to, you know, corn. I mean, it's got enough oil in it that that itself is a natural anti-foaming agent. So we can use fresh corn um, and it not have any problems. But with wheat and rye, there are considerations relative to foaming and uh, how long that material has been harvested for. But here in Kentucky, I mean, you're only getting fresh corn, what, a few months out of the year? Uh, Yeah, but it stays pretty good. I mean, we've had great corn all the way up until just recently, and, and it's still pretty good. I mean, we're yeah. just seeing some, uh, you know, maybe a little more trash in it and some other things. Some worms wiggling around. <laughs> I'll tell you what, Ryan. I don't know if we're gonna have a doctor on again because I feel like an idiot after a while. Uh, Actually, uh, I don't know. I mean, you 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 were keeping a pace over here. You were you were somewhat. Sp- you're, I remember some of these terms. You're spouting out like <laughs> steroids and all those other kind of things. I don't even. My dad know. would be proud. He spent all that money on my education. <laughs> I can keep up with the PhD. <laughs> Well, Pat, I want to say uh, thank you again for coming on the show today. I want you to uh, give one more plug for uh, Firm Solutions and uh, uh, Wilderness Trail while you're at it. Yeah, absolutely. Any distillers out there need any help or, or uh, you know, anything distillery uh, related, that's what Firm Solutions is all about. 
and you know wilderness trail distillery we're uh, actually coming up on our our oldest bourbon is going to be four years old next month so right. in 2018 we'll be releasing our first bourbon which we actually made it and we actually aged it and so the stuff we're going to have in our bottles is actually our stuff and it'll be bottled in bond and uh i mean we're shooting for a seven plus year but you know at this point we got to at least trickle out a few bottles at four years well if you practice what you preach i'm sure it's pretty damn good oh yeah it's super good (laughs) (laughs) but uh, it is delicious well, uh, Dr. Heist and, you know, Pat, uh, Elmer, whatever you want to go by, thank you so much for being on the show yeah, today. That was awesome. It was, uh, it was fantastic. And, you know, uh, thank you for everybody that was joining in on Patreon and the live chat and asking some of those questions. It was definitely uh, good to have some of those, uh, those things in there. So if you want to be a part of this next time, support us on Patreon and you can sit here and you can watch the live chat and you can watch the, watch this interview. as a doctor's brain. Yeah, exactly. And right. If you have any funk going on your uh you know fermenters or whatever you call pat yeah you know who to call now that's for sure (laughs) so yeah that was awesome so uh with that we'll kind of wrap it up here uh so if you like the show make sure you follow us on facebook instagram and twitter we're gonna be pushing out new stuff uh every single week we've uh if you want to also help support the show we've got a patreon campaign p-a-t-r-e-n O-P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. I should really stop drinking during these shows, right? Yeah. Uh, it's slash bourbon pursuit. And then you can sign up for uh, different donation levels to help support the show. We've got t-shirts and all kinds of cool stuff um, that, uh, that are going to be on there. Uh, with that, Ryan, close us out, man. Yeah, and if you have uh, any show suggestions, feedback, comments, uh, we love hearing from you guys. We want to know what you guys want to hear. So uh, just let us know and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.